0: It's Thursday, March 30th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca, and it happens every spring. But this spring, it's happening a little different than it used to happen. You know that movie, 1949, Ray Milland? He's a scientist, he invents a substance, it repels wood, he becomes a star pitcher, he finds glory and love, he cheats his way into the hearts of all of us. Well, this year, even though it does happen every spring, the difference is baseball took a deep look at itself, and it had the time to do so, what with all the pitching changes and pitch outs. And baseball realized that the sport had become an ever-ending series of guys adjusting their batting gloves in between the occasional flight of a baseball or running along the base paths. So a pitch clock was instituted and the bases got bigger and fluffier. That's nice. And something called the shift was banned, although maybe we'll see guys running into their shift positions. That could be interesting and a little like uh, an infantry maneuver. So the question is, will all of this help the game? Sure, it will. I very much look forward to two-hour, 20-minute games, two-hour, 30-minute games, as opposed to the three-and-a-half-hour variety we were served up until now. It's funny. Entertainment. You would think more for your entertainment dollar would be more appreciated. Oh, no. It is not. Not by me. Not by all of us. Not by the fans who are staying away in droves, though. You know, baseball made $11 billion last year, and even though it's not the national pastime, it still owns that brand, and it has certain advantages. One is that it goes back 140 years as that brand. Another is that people love their teams, and when their team does well and has a playoff run, people are really excited. But unlike other sports, I think this has changed forever. Baseball has receded from the national consciousness. It's a little hard to put your finger on, but I think of it like this. Football, the NFL, is culturally dominant. So if I find out that someone else is a fan of the NFL or a fan of football, I can reasonably engage in a conversation about Almost every quarterback in the league, most offenses, a lot of coaches, there are a lot of specific references, recent plays are named. I mean, football is a lot going for it in terms of this. There are many fewer games. It actually has more action and less standing around than baseball. But I think the point is that if you told me, oh, I like the Green Bay Packers, boom, I'm engaged with you in a conversation on a pretty deep level. Maybe not backup linebackers, but everyone but. When it comes to baseball, I've talked to people who self-identify as a fan of a team. Oh yeah, like the Arizona Diamondbacks. And maybe they go to three, four games a year and they certainly have a jersey. But I will mention their best player at the time. Oh, Zach Allen. And they will think I said Zach Allen. I actually said Zach Gallon. The guy has a somewhat unusual name. A lot of baseball figures do. Think of Vin Scully. Last letter of the first name blends with the first letter of the last name. It's just not culturally dominant. The greatest baseball or most interesting and possibly one of the greatest baseball players of the last quarter century is playing right now in Los Angeles. Do you know him? Shoei Otani. The feats that this pitcher and slugger can perform. I know he's Japanese. Still, there's a big Korean boy band who gets a lot of attention. Shoei Otani in the United States really does not. I don't bemoan it, I just note it. And what's happened to baseball, in my estimation, is that it has gone from something with mass, mass appeal, in other words, it was seen to have mass appeal, and then it had massive holds on our thinking and our consciousness, has now receded to the area of mass niche appeal. Which is to say, it is actually, like I said, $11 billion, and it's still quite a popular thing. It's just seen as more of a niche enterprise where I will tread cautiously and see how much you know about statistics before I'll engage in a conversation. You can't just assume that everyone knows what you're talking about. Niche mass, there are niche mass enterprises and phenomenon in the United States. Let us take the author Colleen Hoover. Ever heard of her? Well, maybe you have because she's massively massive, Publishers Weekly ranked the best-selling authors last year. Colleen Hoover dominates number one book in America last year. It ends with us, Colleen Hoover. Number two, Verity, Colleen Hoover. Number three, it starts with us, Colleen Hoover. Colleen Hoover is also at the fifth, eighth, and ninth spot in the top 10. She is massive, but it's a little bit niche. The, you could say, elites, the cultural conversation, it's not about Colleen Hoover. Other side of that coin Jennifer Coolidge. Jennifer Coolidge was in a show where she blew up. She was everywhere. Everyone knew about Jennifer Coolidge because she was in White Lotus. But that's actually a niche show. 2.8 million people watched the season finale, highest rated show of that season. With uh, people catching up and streaming later, that number did grow. But, you know, fewer people saw Jennifer Coolidge and White Lotus than would see her on the CBS show Two Broke Girls. You better hurry up and get dressed. Sophie, I'm already dressed. You are? (laughs) And I like what I'm wearing. You do? (laughs) Well, just put on a little makeup. I'm fully made up. You are! She was on, I think, almost every episode for six years. Two Broke Girls averaged, in its first year, 11.29 million viewers. The biggest episodes got many, many more million than that. Many more people were seeing and looking at and could be aware of Jennifer Coolidge when she was on this massive show that was in everybody's living room who had a TV and who had broadcast television. It just seemed, or it didn't dominate, it seemed more like a niche phenomenon uh, than when Jennifer Coolidge was on White Lotus, which was actually a bit of a niche phenomenon that seemed more mass and had a greater hold on us. I think baseball is moving from a mass mass phenomenon to a mass niche phenomenon. Still big, still quick, but not the kind of thing where you could just launch into a conversation and know that Zach Allen begins his last name with a G. On the show today, I will, uh, this is my 180 days, I will talk about school shootings and hardening schools as targets in the spiel. But first, so as you know, Adnan Saeed, the subject of season one of Serial, who was freed, has now had a ruling against him in favor of Heyman Lee, the murder victim's brother being able to come and see any adjudication of his criminal status. We're not sure if he's going to, Said is going to be put back in prison at any time, and his lawyers are advocating that his conviction still be vacated. That will have to play out. But the reason that he was freed at all, and the reason that many legal observers are saying that he will ultimately be freed, is, yes, due to the efforts of Serial, yes, due to the efforts of dedicated lawyers, dedicated advocates, but also the state legislature. And without the state legislature passing a bill, the Juvenile Restoration Act, none of this would have been possible. That act was sponsored by delegate Jazz Lewis in the state house and in the Senate, Christopher R. West was sponsor, the only Republican sponsor, in fact. Up next, Chris West joins us to discuss how the bill was passed, why he championed it, and what his hopes are for bipartisan, which is to say, Republican support for similar measures locally or nationally. Senator Chris West of Maryland, up next. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130. That seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. In 2022, the state of Maryland passed a juvenile justice reform bill. It did many things. And one of the things it did was open for examination the sentences of many juveniles in state prison who were to be there for long, long terms. It also reset the rules about how old a child would have to be to be subject to the jurisdiction of juvenile court. Kids younger than 13, for instance, were mentioned. The sponsors of this bill were a Democrat in the Maryland House of Delegates named Jazz Lewis and a Republican. In the Maryland State Senate, named Christopher West. Senator West is here to talk about the bill and a famous case you may have heard of that gets mentioned a lot in relationship to this bill. Welcome to the gist, Senator Christopher West. Good to be with you. So, before you began taking up this action, had you heard or what had you heard of the defendant or prisoner in a Maryland correctional facility, Adnan Saeed?
1: I'm not sure I'd heard anything, to be honest with you. Uh, It's something that Typically, I don't read the crime reports uh, and I don't read the reports about the cr- cr- people who are being tried in, in Maryland courts. Uh, at least I don't read them carefully enough to remember the name years later. Uh, so I, I, you know, it came as news to me when the name hit the press about a month ago.
0: So in other words, you passed this reform. The reform did, in fact, allow his case to be opened. But you didn't even connect your landmark bill to this case until after the bill was already law?
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, the bill became law a year and a half ago, two years ago. And we passed it not this past session, but the session before that, and became law that October. So you can figure out the timing. Um, So yes, the bill was passed long before I'd heard the name Syed. Why were you interested in passing this bill? I just thought it was the right thing to do. I I believe every everybody has has a soul or a conscience. Call it what you want. Your heart, uh, God speaks to all of us uh, internally and tells us what the right thing. And God, I believe God wants every one of us to to, to be better to follow His rules. So if you, as a teenager, fall astray, and Heaven knows there are an awful lot of teenagers that fall astray. Um, you have the capacity for redemption. So what the bill says literally is if, you're, if, you're, if you commit a crime when you're under 18 years old, so you're talking about 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds, and you're sentenced to jail for a very long time, obviously the crime was a serious one, um, after 20 years in jail, fully 20 years behind bars, you have the right to go back to the same court that, that sentenced you and file a petition and ask to have your sentence reviewed. And you'll go to them and you'll say, you know, I've, I've changed. I'm not the same person at 37 than I was at 17. I've matured. My mind has matured. I've matured. I'm a different person. Look at my my record in jail. I have a you know, perfect record. No infractions in jail at all. I've taken, of course, I've gotten my GED. I've taken college level courses. I've taken vocational courses. I may have a letter from the warden saying I've been a model prisoner. And then the judge has to make a decision. And the decision, there are two standards. Number one, is this person any longer a threat to society? And number two, would the interest of justice be served by reducing, maybe eliminating the rest of this person's sentence? Can you tell us about
0: the process of passing a pretty major act like this through both houses of the legislature and through a uh, assembly where uh, especially people in your caucus, the Republican caucus, weren't necessarily on board?
1: Well, it's not that they weren't necessarily on board. They were very much opposed to it. So I'm, I'm the only Republican in either House that supported this, I believe. Um, I just thought it was the right thing to do. So I Jazz introduced it in the House. I introduced it in the Senate. Uh, in both cases, the bill had a hearing. Uh, and then in the Senate, we went first. We had a a, a, a voting session in which the my, my fellow Republicans rehearsed their vehement opposition to the bill. Um, and, um, But at the end of the day, we passed the bill and sent it to the Senate floor. And once again, there was vehement opposition. Uh, I let uh, the committee chair take the role of the floor leader, and I basically sat there silently, even though I was the sponsor. It passed and went over to the House. Uh, Jazz's bill passed the House and came over to the Senate. Um, and then my bill made it through the House. Uh, I went to the governor's desk. Jazz's bill got hung up in the Senate because it came over so late. And the apprehension was that it would would take a lot of time. We'd have lots of histrionics on the floor once again. And there just wasn't time for that. So Jazz's bill got mired. My bill got passed. Governor vetoed my bill. Now, this is Governor Hogan, who is a Republican. Yes, that's right.
0: And not a Christopher West Republican on this issue.
1: No, actually, I'm pretty close to Larry on many issues. He's very moderate. But on this issue, he disagreed with me and vetoed the bill. So it came back to the Senate and the House for veto override votes. And I decided I had to man up in the Senate. So I stood on the floor and and made a speech in which I disagreed with my own governor and urged that the Senate override the veto, which they did. And the House overrode it as well. So that said the bill got passed. And so what, if any, costs have you
0: or other supporters of the bill had to pay?
1: Well, I've... Uh, uh, Spoke, I speak frequently at, little, at Republican clubs dotted around my district, and I have been called a traitor, at, and even worse, uh, in very loud tones in some of those clubs, but I just had to stand my ground and explain why I thought this bill made sense, and why, I mean, the, the concern, I think, is that heinous, really heinous criminals, serial murderers and the like. A couple, 20 years ago, we had a sniper going around the state shooting innocent people like pump, they're pumping gas and they got shot yeah. by the sniper they're thinking that people like that are going to get out and I don't think people like that would ever get a judge uh, who 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 showed that that incredible callous uh, respect for human life uh, would ever get a judge to conclude that they're no longer a threat to society it would be a really really uphill lift for a client for those people to get a judge to 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 find that about them, but then there are other people. We had one in Baltimore County. I keep talking about. There were there were three of them. They went out to rob houses. Two of them went in the house to rob the house. The third was the getaway driver in the car. A policeman comes up and sees something fishy and points her gun at the car and says, "Get out of the car!" And in a split second, he makes the wrong decision and instead of turning the car off and getting out of the car, he floors it and he hits her and she dies. Um, terrible thing to have happened. But you're not, you're not, that person is a lot different from Lee Boyd Malvo, who is shooting again and again and again, innocent people. So that's the kind of person who 20 years later might be able to go say, judge. I made a terrible decision when I was 17 years old. I'm now 37. I've learned my lesson. I've been a model prisoner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a judge would say, yes, you're the kind of person who ought to be let out.
0: Yes, and to be clear, just so my listeners know, this is not freeing people after twenty years. It's just reviewing files and allowing for the possibility of that.
1: Well, it could it could free people, and in many cases, frankly, it will. But it also allows just the sentence to be reduced. So instead of a, having a forty-year sentence, you're knocking it down to a thirty-year sentence or a twenty-five-year sentence. Do you feel your political future has been put at risk? Was this a risky vote for you? It was a risky vote. And yes, um, my 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 district was changed in redistricting and made extremely Republican, and so I was quite concerned that I was going to have a, a robust primary challenge, uh, pointing out bills like this. And this is there are a couple of others like this that I've also sponsored over the years. Uh, fortunately, I didn't that didn't happen. I had two primary opponents who were not well funded. And I I got 63% of the vote. I have no Democratic opponent in the fall. And this is the last time I'm going to run. I will not run in four years. So the answer is I've survived. And
0: beyond the one high profile case of Adnan Saeed that we talked about, how is this law, how is the review going for everyone else who's eligible in the system?
1: A report came out like two weeks ago about what's happened so far, because this thing went into effect a year ago, last October. Only 40 people in jail applied to get out or ha- to have their sentences reduced. I I, ex- I was stunned. I expected hundreds, you know, because everybody who'd been put in jail as a juvenile had the right as of last October 1st to apply. So only 40 people applied of the 40, I think it was like 32. Um, the, 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 the result was positive in eight cases. The result was negative. The court said no in 32 is positive. And None of those 32 has has committed a crime or has been hauled into court or arrested or charged with anything in the intervening year. No recidivism at all. Now, we're only one year into it, but still, isn't it great that one year year's passed and there's no recidivism? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about similar
0: efforts, maybe not you as the Republican co-sponsor, but similar efforts for... Either bipartisanship, or criminal justice reform, or just embracing data rather than feelings in uh, in terms of our elected officials going forward.
1: Yeah, I will tell you, I think the U.S. Congress has done this country a terrible disservice uh, with the rancorous partisanship that we see down there. We don't, I, we don't get that here in, in Maryland. In Maryland, it's it's not at all unusual for me to be back in the back room with my sleeves rolled up, sitting shoulder to shoulder with Democrats, working through the intricacies of some bill, trying to fix the problems and turn out a piece of legislation we can all be proud of. And so frequently, the bills from our committee go to the floor of the state Senate with the unanimous vote in the, in the committee. So um, if the voters just could, could see what was going on at the state level, I think they would be more comfortable that this country is not, at the end of its life, because of partisanship, but in fact, things are working out pretty well. Christopher West is a Maryland
0: state senator and the Republican sponsor of the bill in the state Senate that allowed for a review of the lengthy sentences of juveniles in the Maryland state system. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed,
1: explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and
0: over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford,
1: And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case.
0: Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. After a mass shooting, especially a school shooting, politicians who invoke the dodge of too soon are rightly called out. But if I'm going to be intellectually consistent, I thought I had to do this spiel today, knowing that funerals have yet to be conducted for the three nine-year-olds, two 60-year-olds, 161 year old who were slaughtered in Nashville on Monday. So after the shooting, CNN, among other outlets, heard from Brink Fiddler, who's a former Metro Nashville Police Department officer. And despite Brink Fiddler's Dickensian name, he is all square jaw, dark shades, black polo shirt, displaying the logo of his company, which is Defend Systems. He did the training at the Covenant School where the shooting took place.
1: Several were able to evacuate safely the ones that couldn't do that safely, did exactly what they were taught and trained to do, and that was lock down and fortify their position. They did that. Uh, the shooter fired multiple rounds into several classrooms um, and was not able to uh, hit any of the victims um, in those classrooms because the teachers knew exactly what to do, how to fortify their doors, and where to place their children in those rooms.
0: And so it worked, the training did. It did what it was supposed to do, right? It hardened targets, it limited the carnage. I can't say that it didn't. The extremely quick police response, nearly immediately released to the public, does stand in dire contrast to the dithering and after action evasion we saw out of Vivalde, Texas. And before we even get to hardening targets, just a word on how legitimate, very legitimate, the question is, is this really the best we could do? Limiting the death toll, responding to the fact that killers can readily access AR-15s with the response that the police can use AR-15s to kill the killers, that debate is not unimportant, it's just not moving. I'm thinking more of the hardening the targets tactic, the response endorsed not just by the right, but seemingly everyone who wants what we all want to stanch the blood flow, so I choose to engage in this conversation today. Now when I speak, as I just did, of the blood flow and carnage, it doesn't seem like hyperbole, it seems like accuracy, vivid accuracy. But when you hear that there are 74 shootings this school year and that according to the Washington Post's tracker there are more school shootings this year than in any year in 1999, you think of phrases and images like blood flow and death and children. There is no question in your mind that mass shootings in schools are serious problems. And of course they are serious problems. Everyone is. They're just not terribly pervasive problems. The Washington Post database includes every gun incident on campus and every parking lot on a school grounds from the woods near a sports field onto the field or the tragically common suicide by gun in a school bathroom. This, this active shooter... In Nashville was the first active shooter mass murderer this year. Uvalde's was the only active shooter mass murderer last year. But isn't one enough? One incident? Yes, of course it is. But against the backdrop of 20,000 firearms deaths in America, excluding suicide, it is a tiny fraction of the actual epidemic. James Allen Fox, a criminologist at Northeastern, tracks these events, advises the Associated Press. He puts the annual odds that an American child will die in a mass shooting at a school at nearly 1 in 10 million. One particularly brutal incident like Uvalde can bring those odds down to 1 in 5 million, but over time it remains that remote A possibility. The Journal of the American Medical Association published a study that concluded that the odds of any one child dying in a school shooting on any given day are one in 614 million. More students die at home, in cars, on bikes, and bathtubs, and natural disasters. I could list a dozen more means. But wait, you're saying you've no doubt heard the widely reported statistic that guns, not cars, are the leading causes of death per student. We are failing our children, tweeted Barack Obama. Guns are now the leading cause of death for children in the U.S. Well, that's true, but it very much depends on how you define children. The World Health Organization includes up till the age of 19, and there were 4,357 Americans aged between 1 and 19 who died from guns the last year for which statistics were available. But if you look at those under 17 school-aged children, the figure was 2,270, which is slightly less than auto-deaths. The precision over age cutoffs and expressing the stat, it's only important because we're talking about the phenomenon of hardening targets, hardening schools, locking down schools, pouring massive resources into surviving school shootings so that the children in the schools will survive, not the 19-year-olds who are tragically killed in gun incidents, but aren't in the schools. The Washington Post, as I said, tracks school shootings. They include anything in their database that could plausibly fit in the category. They count the killings at the Covenant School as the only murders in school so far this year. Last year, other than the 21 in Uvalde, there were 12 deaths in the schools. These were all targeted killings, not mass shootings, for which drills would work. One was a drive-by among either gangs or just armed teens in Des Moines out to kill rivals. There was a 12-year-old who shot another 12-year-old. There was a 15-year-old killed in his car in school grounds in Pittsburgh. Authorities have yet to make charges. So what I'm saying is we all need to think with maximum compassion about the 2,270 dead children and adolescents and mourn them all. If you want to think with precision and strategy, know that the drills we're talking about aren't going to affect 99 and wouldn't have affected 99% of them. And the drills are ubiquitous. 95% of schools drill. And I can't say they don't do anything. The training does work. The students do seem to respond in the ways the training is designed to make them respond. But at what cost? All right, let's talk about cost. Here's one actual cost. The trace says $2.7 billion are spent annually on everything from lessons to staffing to building redesign. Here's another cost. Armed school resource officers are now in 70% of high schools and middle schools, almost 50% of elementary schools, and that has given rise to incidents of abuse when they're sicked on students who aren't armed or dangerous, but just misbehaving. Yet another question is, and cost is psychological. We just had a big societal round of questions as to why our youths are historically depressed. Social media got most of the blame, but these ubiquitous drills must take a toll. Empirical data is starting to emerge. The journal Nature published a study by researchers at Georgia Tech and found that rates of anxiety went up 42.1% after lockdown drills. Rates of depression increased by 38.7%. And there is another cost, as floated by Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota, quoted on CNN.
1: We've got uh, about $500 million that we think over a five-year period of time that's already been allocated for putting in solar panels at schools. Could we reallocate that back over a five-year period of time, provide grants back to the states, and allow them to go back in and help individual school districts to actually protect those those schools, make them uh, more difficult to get into?
0: But solar panels are necessary. We need solar panels. It doesn't have to be either or with school safety or solar panels, but under that proposal it would be. In fact, that's too optimistic. We might not get any more school safety. That's hard to measure. We certainly won't get the kind of funding for renewable energy that Republican senators loathe, but that we need. If I were in charge of a school board, I would not stand up and say, we are not doing school shooter training. If I'm talking about the mental health effects of undergoing the training, those statistics I cited, I mean there are are effects, and I have to acknowledge that there are effects of children who are scared of the shootings they hear about on the news, and if we don't give them any tools or response-based insurances, that they're not powerless, we're not doing right by them. But I am very mindful of the costs of the cure. Whenever you make a calculation about how much the cures cost, you don't just consider if the cure works, though you should consider that. You don't consider how expensive the cure is monetarily or otherwise. You need a good, accurate accounting of the scope of the problem. Mass shootings in schools are horrific, but that's the point. They so horrify us that sometimes we can't see clearly when it comes to their prevalence or likelihood. So, I know now, not to say it is the time for hope and prayers, but I do counsel, along with experiencing shock and mourning the dead, a good deal of reflection. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Gist producer. Joel Patterson is the Gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca runs the whole philanthropy department here at Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com/slash/the-gist. Umpruji prudu pru. And thanks for listening.